what it is like to live as a Christian in the modern world. Now, now historians divide, you know, broadly speaking, history into three periods. You got your ancient world, you got your medieval world, and then you have your modern world. And everybody disagrees about what it means to be modern. Are we still modern? Everybody disagrees about this. But basically, if you're a historian, if you look at history, you got three types, three eras, three places, three moments, ancient, medieval, modern. Right? I think we all know, uh, you know, in, in the medieval world, that one of the dominant uh, players was the church. There was a Christendom, so-called. The church had a big role in that. Uh, in the ancient world, uh, you didn't have one church. You had a variety of religions, but uh, the ancient world really about, um, in, in one sense, kings, queens ruling over, dominating, different, different groups trying to come together and formulate uh, some, some polity. But in the modern world, one of the challenges we have in our day is <clears throat> that the ancient people look back to a golden age. If you read the Greeks, the Romans, they're always looking back to their myths. They're always looking back to the golden age. The medieval folks, they looked to the golden age. They always were saying that we're not as good as the Greeks and the Romans. We're not as good. We need to do better. The past was the best. But modern people, what makes people modern, what makes you modern, is that you're not looking back. What makes us modern in the last 200, 300 years is that we look forward modern people. The distinction here is that we are looking forward in part because guess what? You have running water. You have toilets you can use. There's no outhouse. There's no, you know, putting it in a little uh, bedpan and throwing it out the window like you do in the Middle Ages. You have seen in your lifetime technology uh, make dramatic advances over what has come before. You've seen that. You've seen growth and changes in that way. Uh, Aristotle's ideas on physics were the standard until 1675. And after that, uh, we think we have the ability to control our world, our universe, our future, ourselves. We can build new worlds. This came to be a view epitomized for many, including Kuiper, by the French, the French Revolution particularly. This was the signal moment for many Europeans, the signal moment for Kuiper. Voltaire, one of the intellectual heroes for the revolutionaries, declared this about Jesus Christ, down with the scoundrel. Down with the scoundrel. And so the French said, we have no more need for God. And many have followed in their, in their train. And so here, in the three weeks we have together, what I want to sketch for you is the way a successful modern Christian politician responded to the modern world. It's election season, of course. That's one reason why I picked this. Because I think for, for many of us, one concern we have is the ability to bring your Christian faith to bear in the public square. What does it mean to be a Christian in, in the public arena, the political decisions we make? Kuiper is one Christian who realized that it was no longer a church-based world that there was a pluralism, there was a uh, multiplicity, there were multiple faiths, there were multiple uh, religions out there. There were Jews and Muslims, there were atheists, and there were all different types of Christians. How do they live together? This is your world. You have neighbors. They're not Christian. They may say they are. They're not your type of Christian. At best. What does that mean? How do we as Christians live in a world that has been changed? And Kuiper, I think, really understood this uh, more than 
more than most. He understood that the church found herself in a world with new problems that needed new solutions. New problems that needed new solutions. And so we're going to look in three weeks, very simple outline of our weeks. Today we're going to look at what is often neglected, Kuiper the Christian. Next week, Kuiper the modern Christian. And then finally, the week you're all waiting for, uh, we'll look for Kuiper the modern Christian politician. What that, what that means like, what that looked like, uh, what, what he saw the role of politics and the church, the family, the state, arts, all the rest together. He had, one thing about Kuiper is that he, he, he is able to combine both um, deep intelligence with deep organizational skill. And most folks are one or the other, right? You're able to organize well. You're able to think well. Kuiper's able to do both well. Uh, and that's one reason why he was so, uh, so successful. So um, let's look first, however, at the period of life that I think most folks skip over. You know, when I was taught Kuiper in seminary, when we had a class on him, we didn't touch this part. I've been doing research the last couple of weeks, and I found a lot here that I wish I knew. There's none before. It's fascinating. But uh, let me give you a little bit of it. Like I said, I got a few pages in notes. We'll get through uh, the key things here. So that's kind of a, a brief overview of what we're going to be looking at, uh, what it means to be a modern Christian, what it means to be a Christian in a world that has been changed. Um, so Kuiper, born, you'll see your handout. He's born in 1837. He's Dutch. Those two things together will tell you a fair bit. They'll tell you on the one hand, he's born in the wake of a guy you may have heard of called Napoleon. Napoleon, the French, had conquered the Dutch. The Dutch hated Napoleon. The Dutch hated French people. And in fact, there was a big controversy in the Dutch church in this time over whether or not you should read or like John Calvin. Which may surprise you because, you know, John Calvin, Calvinist, that sort of thing. But why is John Calvin bad? He's French. French. He's a bad guy. We shouldn't read him. There was a big, there was a big debate in, in the post-Napoleon conquered Dutch land about what does it mean to be a Dutch, a Dutch person? What does it mean to be even a Christian? This is post-French Revolution. This is post, you know, uh, taking down the, the, the calendar. One of the things the revolutionaries did in France is they didn't just say liberty, yeah, liberté, égalité, fraternité, you know, liberty, freedom, brotherhood. They said the calendar must go. They hated the church. They hated the Catholic church. They loved to make fun of priests. They loved to attack Christian symbols. They burned crosses way before anybody else did. Uh, and they, they said, look, we're going to make a new calendar. You know how many days they put in their new calendar? Ten. Yeah, ten new days. Exactly. Good job, Greg. Excellent. You get the gold star for the day, right? They said, look, no longer seven-day calendars. Who want ten days? They, they made new months. They made new people. Uh, it, it was this radical destruction of what had gone before, this modern idea that we can do better, this modern idea that, uh, that our brains, not that our brains are all-knowing, but our brains, our reason, has the ability to determine what role we give everything. So, for example, there's a need for church. What, what ended up developing is there's a need for church. You have these so-called uh, modernists who appear. And they appeared in, in the Dutch church in which uh, Abraham Kuyper's dad was a pastor. His dad, his, his name, Jan Kuyper, Jan Frederick Kuyper, he was a pastor. And he grew up in a church that was divided. 
it was divided. It was a state church, the Dutch Reformed Church, a state church. It was divided between modernists. Modernists who said, look, there's no way supernatural things can happen. There's no way miracles can happen. There's no way a resurrection can happen. Jesus Christ is a great, was a great man. We need his example. We need to live a virtuous life, and Jesus Christ is an example of how you are to live a virtuous life. Look at his pathway. Look at the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is you trying to follow the sense that you have of, of a, a divine. There may be one, there probably isn't one, but the goal is you need to develop your own virtue. We need to, as a society, as a world, as a continent, we can develop our own amazing nation, our own amazing world, our own amazing family through virtue. And the Bible, the role of religion is to help us do that a bit better. That was the modern idea. Anti-supernatural. On the other hand, of course, you had kind of the hardcore, you know, old school uh, Calvinist in the Dutch church, right? So uh, you had the modernist on the very other end of the spectrum. You had the kind of hardcore people uh, who were like really, really intense. This was actually most of the uh, most of the population was this way. Most of the lower classes, most of the uh, people who went to church were like this. But in the middle, you had, uh, you had folks who were kind of uh, moderate. Uh, they were a part of what was called the uh, reveal. That's a French word basically for uh, revival or renewal movement. You can think of it that way. And these folks were kind of like your, your, your classic moderate evangelicals. They said, hey, we need... We believe that miracles can happen. We believe that miracles can happen. I've seen lives changed by the gospel. I've seen families changed by the gospel. I've seen people change by the gospel. But what we need is not some hardcore kind of creed, hardcore orthodoxy. No, no. What we need simply is the love, joy, and peace that the Holy Spirit brings. That's all you need. Just to get together in love, get together in joy. And that'll, that'll, that'll save the church from the evil modernist who want to destroy it. That'll save, that'll give a place for Jesus that's really valuable. And so it's into this kind of three-headed monster, which is the, the Dutch church this time, that Abraham Kuyper's born. He was named after his uh, grandfather on his dad's side. His grandfather had, had sold brushes in Amsterdam. His grandfather's business was hit hard by Napoleon because Napoleon instituted a kind of uh, anti-British shipping system and Brushes, I guess, were big for the British ships or whatever to clean them off, and his granddad's business kind of suffered a lot. He was a shopkeeper. Uh, his dad was a pastor. His dad fell into this kind of moderate, you know, I believe in Jesus, but let's not be too intense about it. <clears throat> his dad was a uh, supernaturalist, but uh, really focused, um, studying your Bible every day, what we might call a quiet time. He focused on family worship, you focus on you know, bringing up kids, but just simply trusting Jesus. That's all you got to do. Very common in our day as well. Um, and yet, when, when Abraham Kuyper was born, he had a nickname. He was nicknamed Bram. I'll be calling him Bram from time to time. Um, and uh, maybe two or three days after he was born, after all the, you know, the yucky stuff and the baby had kind of dissipated the call or whatever it is. I'm no baby expert. You can tell me what that looks like. But um, after all that had gone away, he was pretty. Uh, a, a doctor came to his home, inspected the baby, and said, Wow, mom and dad, your son is going to be amazing. Your son's going to be a superstar. And they asked him, How do you know that? 
he said, because he has a big head. He was a big-headed baby. He had a huge head. And uh, this doctor, so-called, uh, said, uh, wow, he's, uh, he's going to be brilliant because of his head size. Um, I don't think that's what we would do today, but uh, that's, that's what, um, what Kuiper was uh, kind of, that, that's the legend of Kuiper's birth. Um, now, Bram grew up in, in the city, in a city called Leiden. If you want to, you can find on the back of your, your, uh, your, your outline. Um, he grew up listening to his dad's sermons. He grew up going to church. What did his dad preach on? As far as we can tell, two major things. First, one that we would agree with. Atonement at the cross is rendered for the sins of the world. Second thing, as a Christian, just trust. Just simply trust. Don't think too much about things. Just trust. That's all. Because you know what happens when you think too much about things? You become somebody who denies Jesus Christ. Don't think too much. Just trust and obey. And that's it. Now, that, of course, there, there, are, there are good things about that. There's, there are positive things about that, that mindset. Um, and yet, what's striking is that Kuiper, growing up under this kind of dad, rejected it. He rejects it. Let me give you some quotes about his early upbringing. He, he went to the, the gymnasium, the high school at uh, Leiden. He says this, in the years of my youth, the church aroused my aversion more than my affection. And he says, the spirit was absent. My heart could feel no sympathy for a religion of this. He said, finally, my faith was not deeply rooted in my unconverted, self-centered soul and was bound to wither once exposed to the scorching heat of the spirit of doubt. So he's educated. He, he, he grows up, he's homeschooled, then he goes to high school, uh, what they call gymnasium over there in Europe, and uh, he, he does great. He's smart. He, 1849, he studies. Uh, he, he actually becomes the high school salutatorian. He's a brilliant guy. He, he liked reading lit, literature and history a lot. He, he's, he's really into literature. He's really into history. He gives his high school speech at graduation, and uh, just to show you what kind of a guy he is, he, he gives his speech on an early church bishop who had translated the Bible into Gothic, kind of a national hero for the Dutch back in the day. Um, but Kuiper failed to mention the bishop had been an Aryan heretic, somebody who didn't believe that Jesus Christ was God, but just the first created being. And Kuiper said, you know, looking back on his youth, he said, look, all I cared about was honoring the old tradition and hating Rome. He hated the Roman Catholic Church. It was the epitome of evil for him, in part because of the, of the revolution, in part because of the influence of, of uh, the French, but he hated the French too. He said, what we need is the old Dutch ways. We need to have the old traditional ways. And so in, in that sense, he, he, he would mouth Christian platitudes. He, he would mouth the faith. He would talk about it. His dad, of course, was a pastor. But, you know, his dad's not pushing him, really. His dad's that they had this kind of moderate mindset that said, look, don't, don't, uh, don't get in the weeds and these sort of things. Just trust. And under that, his, uh, his faith withers because it proves actually to have not been much faith at all, as he himself would say. And now part of the issue, of course, is that his dad has seven kids. And it's hard to have a, a, you know, a great education. It's hard to uh, go to the nice schools um, if you're trying to support people on a salary 
of uh, $740 a year. Now, of course, in those days, that was a little more than it is today, but that's how much his dad earned. So for him, spending money was scarce. So he had to go wherever the government would pay for him to go. And the government had a program where they would send people to the University at Leiden, which was like the best school in the the Netherlands. It was uh, the prime school. It was the place you wanted to go to. It had declined a bit from its heyday, but it was still pretty good. They had a program that people usually didn't use. It was a program for the sons of Dutch pastors. And many Dutch pastors didn't want to send their kids there because they... uh, they tended to, well, lose their faith in, in college. But, but Kuyper said, you want to go? Okay, you can, you can go. So he goes to the University of Leiden. And uh, you know, his father, <laughs> the first year he's there, his father says, hey, son, you know, you're studying too much. Um, you're spending too much time out at night. We want you to spend more time with the family. He's like, I can't do that. I got to study. You know, um, Kuyper would work seven days a week six nights a week at his studies. After morning lectures, he had to earn money, so he tutored the kids, the other students there. Uh, he returned home to study until midnight, even 2.30 in the morning. Uh, he woke up at his uh, normal uh, young self about 10.30 in the morning. That's late, of course, but he's up late at night, so it kind of bounces out. The point is that he, he works. He works a lot, and if you work six days, uh, seven days a week, six nights a week, what do you not have time for? Church, if you're working all the time, if you're working and cramming in all the time, you don't have time for church. And so he didn't really attend church regularly in his university days, at least the first, the first, uh, first couple of years. Uh, he didn't really take communion with any value. He didn't see anything good in it. Um, and, and so he, he, he becomes a, um, well, uh, a smart guy, but he goes through all his education, all his schooling, in college, he eventually goes to seminary. Uh, he eventually gets a doctorate. He's not converted. He's not a saved man. But he does have one thing. He does have one thing. Uh, beginning in the year 1858, he's, 20, he's roughly 20 years old, he gets a girl. He finds a gal. Um, he finds a girl. We'll call her Joe. Bram and Joe together. Her, her name was Johanna. Johanna Shai, Shay, I think. I don't know. I'm, I'm not a Dutch person. She was 16 years old. He was 20 years old. Um, and that summer, he all consumed. He was totally consumed with courting Joe. But there were two big issues. His parents thought he could do better, and her parents hated him. His parents said, She's, uh, she has a stockbroker for a father, that's not our kind of class. She's not, she's not really smart enough for you. She's not good enough for you. She is kind of the, the uh, middle class, you know, lower middle class person. We are, you know, we, we have higher aspirations. You have been classically educated. We've educated you at home. You've gone to this university. You're intelligent. She's business class. Business. Money. Ugh. You don't talk about those sort of things. That's not polite conversation. She will not know how to be a well-educated, well-rounded girl. And of course, uh, her parents said, this guy is just a nerd. He's, he's just an a educated, stuck-up guy. He doesn't treat you well. 
And um, yet, September 14th, three months into their courtship, their relationship, uh, they exchange pledges. They, they say, hey, we're, we're going to be engaged to be married. And what follows is that classic Victorian romantic relationship. Early engagement, long, long, long engagement until finally you get married. Classic, uh, classic Victorian way. Uh, it's five years, five years until he gets married. Five years uh, while he uh, is engaged to this girl. Um, and let me tell you what he thought about her. This is what he wrote to her. Um, he says, I've always thought to myself, uh, his friends were saying, you know, you can do better than this. And he said, no, 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 no. Joe, I've always thought to myself, I'd rather shape a girl, teach her how to think, raise her up more and more to the level in which I stand. Now, now ladies, uh, if that had been somebody, if that's what uh, your, your uh, future husband had written to you, uh, <laughs> I don't know if, uh, how much that would, that would work. Um, Kuiper, uh, Bram said that, that, Joe, I need to refit you to be a cultured woman a mother who might have to educate her own kids. Uh, he says, never have I so fully recognized since our engagement the gulf that exists between us and you. We are classically educated. You are not. But he said, look, look, Joe, don't blame yourself. It's not your fault. It's your family's fault, which is another, you know, another great line to give to, uh, to your future beloved. He says this, in circles like yours, more work is done with the body than the mind. Let me help you out. So he did. Uh, he, he, um, he, he says, here's what we need to do, Joe. I'm going to set you a daily reading program. I'm going to give you homework. He says, all right. Uh, have you read Shakespeare? Nope. Shakespeare. Kuiper loved it until the, to, until the day he died. He quoted Shakespeare more than anybody else in his writings. He loved Shakespeare. He said, you need to read Shakespeare. You need to read the German poets. You need to read uh, the French writers. You need to read Byron. You need to read Milton. And she's very patient with him. She acquiesces, shockingly. I mean, maybe to us it's very shocking. To me, it's shocking. She says, okay. But she writes to him, hey, hey, Bram, uh, thank you. I got, I got the books. And he, said, he writes back to her, don't say the books. Use their names. Tell me the ones you got. Uh, he's exasperated that she can't take time off from doing her household chores to read, to study. He's heartbroken that she prefers Dickens to Shakespeare. He says, you need to spend less on clothes, more on books. He's annoyed that she wants to chit-chat in her letters instead of having highfalutin discussions about intellectual things. It's a great match, right? Great match. <clears throat> Five years of this. But there's a deep irony that we'll come to in, in, in a few minutes, a deep irony. Uh, yet he presses her, and this I think is very helpful for us to consider, while he's studying, he presses her on the religious front as well. He's a grad student, she's a teenager. And he begins to press her on her questions. He begins to press her on her faith. She's, she's preparing to publicly profess her faith. In the Dutch church, the typical tradition in those days was to wait until you're 17 or 18 or 16 late to publicly uh, come forward and profess your faith um, for various reasons I can't get into right now. And so he, he was helping her. She knew her Bible. She knew her cat. She was faithful. She was a Christian. But here's the issue. He never liked her answers. He always kept saying, but why do you believe it? 
Tell me why you believe or your belief is not real religion. And eventually, Joe is like, look, I've had enough. I've given you the answers. I've given you the catechism. I've given you the scriptures. I've given you what, what are faithful, orthodox answers. And she said, all right, you tell me. Write down your convictions. You tell me why. And this, is, this, is, this tells you, this gives you a clue of where he is. It's, um, it shows you where he is. Let me give you some quotes here from his, his letters. Um, <clears throat> you don't think anybody can doubt that Jesus did not exist before he appeared on earth. You're wrong. I deny it. He denies that Christ existed before his incarnate. He says, he is not God to me. My religious sense teaches me to know one God. To me, Jesus is a man, nothing but a man. He says this <clears throat> later on. I think this is the quote I use uh, for this, yeah, his education. To me, forgiveness through the blood of Christ is unintelligible. Pastor's kid, right? So he says, he's in his early 20s. He then begins to say, how do you know that Jesus said that? How do you know that he actually said such and such? Wasn't he a man? Religion does not consist in forms, going to church, sacraments, these sort of things. Were we perfect? I'd abandon them all. You see, it's, uh, it's Kuiper. It's Kuiper's faith. His faith is in his, himself, his brain, against all things. Um, and what happens eventually is that Joe begins to get a little pushy. She begins, to, she begins to have questions about the relationship. Maybe a little later than I would have, you would have had. But she says, Bram, I think it would have been better for you had you chosen a girl that had been reared like you and your sisters, classically you call it. Then perhaps everything you wish for would be fulfilled. So in 1861, he's, uh, he's working hard, he's studying. He has a uh, nervous breakdown. Uh, one thing about Kuiper that you need to know is that he will have several of these in his lifetime. He will work himself. He will be pushed. He will uh, come to a, a point, a crisis point in his life, and he'll just break down. The doctor said, uh, Kuiper looks so bad, he needed to come to his home for two weeks immediately. And Kuiper had to. Um, and Kuiper comes back from that two-week rest. He says, all right, I'm ready to get back into work. He works for one day, relapse. He can't take it. He sits for hours in his room. He's listless. He's dreaming. He could write maybe a letter. It would take five months. And eventually what happens is something really remarkable. Um, what's remarkable is that Joe and her family take him in. You know, the guy who is too, too, high, too much, too high class, they take him in. They take him on a seven-week cruise. They take him on a trip. In other words, they love him. They care for him. And it's during that, that time that Kuiper has uh, what, what he would call his, uh, his, his conversion, what, what the scholars sometimes call his, his first conversion. This is 1862. And um, he, he's graduating. He, he's looking uh, for a job at the school. The problem is the school won't pay enough. He's a smart guy. The school wants him, but they can't afford, they can't pay uh, for his room and board. He needs money. And so he's having to do what he hates to do. He, he, he's considering something that 
he would hate to do, which is pastor. He says, well, you know, I, I went to this seminary. I got my seminary degree. Uh, I guess if I have to, I can go to some church and pastor. I guess that'll pay the bill. He, he didn't want to, right? Not at first. But if you're thinking about what am I going to do, I, I, I would love to go to school. I'd love to, I'd love to be a professor. I'd love to write about church history, actually. He's a historian. Uh, but he said, hey, I, I also want to be a pastor because that'll pay the bills. And it's when he's debating this question in 1862, he's recovering with his, wife, with his future wife's family, with his fiance's family. She loans him a book. It's deeply ironic that the very thing he despises is one of the instruments of his conversion. This is the irony. She hands him the best-selling British novel from the year 1853. I hadn't heard of it. I, I, I think it's actually one of the top-selling books of the 19th century. It's a, a book called The Heir of uh, Redcliffe. Now, it's spelled a, a weird way. Let me... Uh, yes. Y-F-F-E. The, the Heir of Redcliffe... Um, by a girl named, a lady named Charlotte Young. And um, it's not high-class literature. It's one of those you know, novels that, you, it's like Dickens. He would have hated it, but he read it. She kept saying, Bram, you should read this. You're, you need to take a break. You need to relax. Let's read this book. And he, he's recovering from this nervous breakdown. He's reading. He reads through it. And um, the main character is a guy named Philip. Philip is an honor student at Oxford. He's a brilliant guy. Um, he, he, he seemed destined for some great intellectual career, but he doesn't have money. doesn't have money. He can't afford to do it. Um, and he gets um, really, really into this girl, and he, he creates a, a writing program for her. He creates a reading program for her. He creates homework for her. And slowly, Kuiper begins to realize, hey, this guy Philip is like me. He's doing what I did. And he reads through the book, he reads through the book, and Philip finds this guy, this, his cousin named Guy. Italy. Um, and, and Philip has been kind of poo-pooing Guy. He's been manipulating Guy. Uh, and then Philip gets sick. He gets sick with the flu. He's nursed back to health by Guy. And then Guy dies. Guy cares for this, for Philip, these characters. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a novel. It's, it's a fiction. It's not, made, it, it's not real. And yet for Kuiper, it seemed like it was his exact life. He says, <clears throat> at that moment, it seemed as if in the crushed Philip, Philip gets sick, he's, 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 uh, he's in remorse. He, Philip realizes his own ambition, his own pride, his own arrogance. And Kuiper says, each of his words of self-condemnation cut through my soul as a judgment on my own ambitions and character. And what happens to Philip? Philip, he's, Kuiper's reading, he's thinking, he's having these deep uh, convicting thoughts. He reads how Philip kneels and prays, and he writes that as Philip knelt, I started to kneel. I found myself kneeling. As Philip prayed, I found myself praying. What my soul experienced at that moment, I fully understood only later. From that moment on, I despised what I used to admire and sought what I dared to despise. He experiences a, Christ, a, a Christian conversion, a religious conversion. Um, and he came to rank this book, this novel. I mean, it's a, it's a British novel. It's not like, uh, it's not high class. It, it, it's a novel. Best-selling work. New York Times bestseller. He ranked it next to the Bible in terms of its meaning for his life. 
not so you should go out and read it and buy it. You know, it's a Victorian novel. But um, for Kuiper, it's deeply ironic that, you know, his fiance's best-selling novel is what uh, what is the instrument that God uses to change his heart. And what's the first thing he does? He realizes, Joe, I've sinned against you. Joe, I've sinned against the Lord in you. Uh, and, and he says, he says this, when I think that you could have been taken away and how hopeless my soul would have cried to get you back, then I feel how much you possess me. Then I pray, God spare her. Let me be a child with her and have for you a child's heart. So Kuiper, in one sense, uh, becomes like his dad, finally. He, he becomes a Christian who is overwhelmed um, with his own guilt, his own sin, his own arrogance, his own pride, the way he treated his fiancée for years. You know, for, for four years, he's been treating her like a little baby, like a peon, you know, um, somebody who needs his help. And he realizes uh, his, his, own, his own arrogance. Um, and he, he, is, he is transformed. Um, I'll pause there for a second before we, we, we pick up with his, uh, very briefly, his, um, his in, initial pastoring. Any, any comments, questions so far? I don't want to just lecture. I want to make sure that there are any, uh, any questions I can answer as well. All right, moving on then. The next year, 63, you know, think of the Civil War over in America. Uh, in Europe, things are okay and stable, but um, he, um, he marries her. He, ma he marries Joe, and he goes to a small country church in a town uh, known as Beaved. I'm not, my Dutch is bad, so I don't know how that actually is pronounced, but you can say it however you want to. Uh, and um, his, his first sermon was on fellowship with God and fellowship with others. His first sermon was fellowship with God. That's what it had really struck him. He said religion in, in, in this time period, his early pastorate, he, he, he was focused on the very basic Christianity that looked at religion as a matter of the heart. He said, your heart needs to be transformed. And there needs to be that, that humility. There needs to be that joy, that love. He becomes influenced by a guy in this, this time, a guy named Da Costa, who was a Messianic Jew, Messianic Jew, a Dutch Messianic Jew. Um, and this guy, Da Costa, like his dad, like the kind of uh, moderate strain in the, in the Dutch state church, uh, says, we have to affirm the head stuff. We have to affirm the, he the head doctrine. What really matters is the heart doctrine. What really matters is the heart experience. Don't get focused on, on, these, on these doctrines. Focus on the heart and therefore care for society. So th this guy, Acosta, was one of the major campaigners in Dutch society for um, the abolition of slavery, particularly in the, in the Dutch colonies overseas. Uh, this guy, Acosta, and, and eventually Kuiper, one of the things we'll see with Kuiper's politics is he carries over this idea that your life should be heart-driven. Your, your Christianity, when it comes to the world, should be driven by not just the brain, but the heart. That's why he wants to improve the working conditions for the workers and the farms and the factories. Um, and so he becomes, at this point in time, very, very ironic. Uh, he, he worked with the uh, uh, deacons to uh, modernize the church accounts, to care for the poor. Uh, and yet, 
there's a big issue that happens in this church. Uh, there were like there was a local count, Count Von something. I don't know what his name is. I mean, I can get his name later if you want to. But there's a count. There's a, a kind of a big shot in the local church, local town. And, and this count didn't like Kuiper. He said, Kuiper, you're, you're meddling in things. You're preaching on the heart. You're, you're urging transformation. No, 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 no. I'm the count. That's the way it's been for hundreds of years. I'm going to stay the count. You don't need to be involved in it. You don't need to, you know, change things. But eventually, in 1866, so he's, uh, he's been there for three years, there's a cholera epidemic that sweeps through the village, and then there's cow typhus. Now, I thought about calling Jim up here to explain to us what cow typhus is, because I have no idea. I don't know if Jim does either. The point is that uh, it was bad. It was bad. Disease comes through, and Kuiper says, we need to hold a prayer service. We need to have a prayer vigil, a, a special prayer service. Uh, and the count said, you know what? That's not in the budget. There's no line item for that in the budget. Uh, so you have to pay for it yourself. I, I guess they, you know, they had to pay for the church to be open or certain things to happen. And so if you're, you're gonna, you want to do it, Pastor, you got to pay for it yourself. And uh, <laughs> he, he, he said, well, you know, this wouldn't be an issue if the deacons weren't making uh, bookkeeping problems. They weren't you know, skimming off the top. So Kuiper responds with this kind of attack. Uh, and yeah, the, the, it's, it's the church issues, right? Um, and and it, eventually, uh, the, the count gives in, you know, and they have the prayer service. Uh, but it's, it's one example of uh, Kuiper's early, from early days on, he will come into conflict with people in authority. He will come into conflict with both church leaders and, um, and uh, lay leaders as well. Uh, he, he would prepare two, two sermons a week when he was a pastor here. He would have 13 hours of catechism for kids. He would have an evening book discussion with laymen. But during his four years at this small church, he only attended one meeting of the local presbytery. Which is just interesting. He, 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 uh, he didn't do that much afterwards. He, he, he said, he realized, I need to be where power is in the church. I need to be where, where people are. Um, and so just to conclude this section, um, of his life and, and today, uh, his preaching in this early this early phase, this kind of again moderate evangelical, you might call it pietistic phase. Uh, he focuses on Jesus Christ. He, he says this: um, <clears throat> the knowledge of God is a moral question. It's not a brain question. It's what you do with your knowledge of God. And so his sermons would often be uh, giving you long descriptions of, of the cross and the torment Christ went through. It would point to the, the moral order of creation, and it would challenge you to give and give and give and give more. In other words, at this point in time, he gives Christian experience priority over Christian doctrine. He prioritizes the experience of the Christian over the doctrine of the Christian. He puts less stock in institutions than individuals. Um, and he says, if, if he had been a politician in, in that, at that moment in his life, he would have said, all you need is the gospel. All you need is, is kind of the gospel to enliven people's hearts and minds. In other words, he sounds very similar. I don't want to paint him just as this, but he sounds very similar to uh, many evangelicals of the last 50 years of the American church. Experience. Deeds, not creeds. And so um, next time, I think, we'll have to look at what he calls his second conversion. We call it the second conversion. We'll look at that uh, as, as he, he's at this small town, this country church, and eventually we'll see him go to the big church in the capital in Amsterdam, and we'll see him um, by uh, 10 years 
for from that date, he'll be up for, for political office. But all that next uh, next time. Uh, any questions you'll have? Comments? We have time maybe for one or two or none. All right. Uh, Jim, if you wouldn't mind just closing us in prayer. We thank you again, Heavenly Father, for your grace and mercy toward us. And we thank you for the, the gift of your church and for preservation of your word in the Bible that we can come and learn and uh, experience uh, also what happened in the lives of other people who listened to your word and uh, you did a work in their lives. And we ask you to continue to work in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you.